Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. By this time of year in a normal year, we would be far into the entertainment industry's awards season, but instead, with that industry still recovering from the crippling body blow of COVID, everything has been pushed back. The Oscars, the Grammys, the Independent Spirits, not one of these ceremonies or any others taken place yet, and God knows our collective lives as couch potatoes have been the poorer as a result. But this coming Sunday, the awards show drought will finally come to an end with the broadcast of the 78th Golden Globes, the first ever bi-coastal version of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association's annual shindig for the movie and TV business, hosted once again by Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, thank God. On this episode of Hell and High Water, we are marking the occasion by going deep on one of the nominees, a TV miniseries that struck me when it aired as both superb in every way and especially relevant and resonant with regard to one aspect of the tumultuous moment we'd all been living through in 2020, that aspect being the racial reckoning in the wake of the killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis. The miniseries in question is The Good Lord Bird, from Showtime, which tells the story of the legendary and or legendarily lunatic white abolitionist militant John Brown, who led the doomed raid on the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia in 1859 that helped spark the Civil War. The series is based on the 2013 National Book Award winning novel of the same name by James McBride, who also served as an executive producer on the series and whom we are lucky to have as one of three guests on the podcast today. Seeing The Good Lord on film was just great. It was very nice. We are also fortunate to have two of the stars of the screen adaptation of McBride's book. One of them is David Diggs, the actor, rapper, singer, songwriter, screenwriter, and film producer, best known for his Grammy and Tony award-winning performance as the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson in the Broadway uber phenomenon Hamilton, and who, in The Good Lord Bird, plays the iconic black abolitionist, Frederick Douglass. Getting to play Frederick Douglass was one of the greatest experiences professionally of my life. It meant the world to me because I got to learn a lot about our history and my history and at the same time stretch my capacity as an actor and an artist. The other Good Lord Birder we have on hand is Ethan Hawke, who not only stars in the series as John Brown, and delivers an utterly electrifying turn for which he received the aforementioned Golden Globe nomination for Best Performance by an Actor in a Miniseries or Television Film, but who is a co-adaptor of the book, a co-creator of the series, and co-screenwriter on two of its episodes. When I was making the movie, every morning at dawn on the way to work, I'd drive down Monument Boulevard in Richmond, Virginia, and I'd stare at these giant statues of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, and I would think, my God, you know, nothing's ever going to change. And... I drove past them today, and they're covered with pictures of George Floyd and with cries for justice. And things do change, and things can change. And uh, I think we all made the show, in some small way at least, to be a part of that conversation. Both the book and the miniseries incarnations of The Good Lord Bird are incendiary, irreverent, at times hilarious, at times profoundly moving accounts of a pivotal piece of American history that is neither widely known nor well understood to the extent it is understood at all. The story's narrator is a fictional creation of McBride's, a teenage slave called Henry Shackelford, played in the series fantastically by fledgling actor Joshua Caleb Johnson, 
who is mistaken for a girl, nicknamed Onion, and informally adopted by John Brown. The wild-eyed, divinely inspired, morally righteous, unapologetically violent, holy roller, nuttier than a squirrel turd, as one character describes him, who turns Onion into an only semi-willing conscript in his ragtag abolitionist army. What unfolds from there is a rambling, shambling picaresque that critics have likened to everything from Huckleberry Finn to the Coen brothers' take on True Grit to Masterpiece Theater to Drunk History. As Brown and Onion trek from Kansas to upstate New York, where they conspire with Frederick Douglass, to Canada, where they cross paths with Harriet Tubman, and finally to Harper's Ferry, where Brown's master plan to end the peculiar institution of slavery devolves into a tragic comic debacle, but ultimately sets in motion the great emancipation. Though I am not a fully disinterested party in that Showtime is home to my series, The Circus, I would say the following about The Good Lord Bird if it had been on Netflix or Hulu. Judged simply as a dramatization of the prelude to the Civil War, the series is a cracking good yarn, beautifully written, gorgeously shot, and studded with standout performances. But The Good Lord Bird is more than merely a handsome costume drama. In its treatment of racism, not as an individual moral failing, but a system of oppression, its examination of white guilt, white allyship, and white redemption, its illustration of the arguments between incrementalism and radicalism, and its forcing of the question of nonviolence versus by all means necessary-ism, the series is, as Matt Zoller cites, put it in his review for Vulture, quote, an historical epic of real vision that speaks to the present as well as the past, staging its scenes in a way that leads us to connect what happened back then with what's happening on America's streets right now. All of which is why, as we come to the close of another Black History Month, it seemed to me that The Good Lord Bird was worthy of a deeper dive and why I am thrilled to have James McBride, David Diggs, and Ethan Hawke here with us today as we all hold hands and take that leap together on Hell and High Water. The question is, did John Brown fail? He certainly did fail to get out of Harper's Ferry before being beaten down by United States soldiers and to lead a liberating army into the mountains of Virginia. So, did John Brown draw his sword against slavery and thereby lose his life in vain? And to this I answer 10,000 times, no. No man fails or can ever fail who so grandly gives himself and all he has to a righteous cause. If John Brown did not end the war that ended slavery, he did at least begin the war that ended slavery. If we look over the dates, places, and men for which this honor is claimed, we shall find that. Not Carolina, but Virginia. Not Fort Sumter, but Harper's Ferry. John Brown's zeal in the cause of freedom was infinitely superior to mine. I could live for the slave. John Brown could die for him. The war being waged in this land is a war for and against slavery. And the Brown Army fired the first shot. Guys, great to have all three of you here for this special Good Lord Bird episode of Pound High Water. I'm hoping that everybody either has read this book, knows this history enough to, to not be bothered by a spoiler alert, which is what that is really. That's kind of the top of the last episode of the series and sort of is both a summary of the story and, and also kind of helps you to think about what you've just seen. And I, I want to talk today about the book, about the series and about 
race in America. And I let's start with the book. It's great to have all three of you guys here to do that. James, let me ask you just to start with the series based on your book, Much Heralded, a book that won the National Book Award. People did not expect it, including you, from what I've read. Just tell me how you came to the idea that this was a subject, a topic, and a story that you wanted to tackle. You know, I've read many books about John Brown, and he, he was portrayed in some of them as rather crazy. And I just didn't believe it after a while. And uh, I happened upon Harper's Ferry while researching another book and came to believe that he was uh, something of a prophet. And, you know, this guy threw his life away for a cause in which he really had no stake. A lot of that had to do with religion and love of his country. And I just thought he was a wonderful person. Well, I mean, I just think he was a compelling American that people should know about. So uh, I just dove into it. Ethan, you had not read the book and someone on another project recommended it to you and said you would make a great John Brown. And then you went and looked at the book and off you guys were to the races. Tell me about like what you saw in the book that made you think, yeah, that guy was right. Like I should play John Brown. This is a story that needs to be told. When I was reading the book, I couldn't stop laughing. I was sitting in my house and I was just cackling, just like a grade school idiot. I just kept giggling. And, and my wife kept saying, what are you laughing about? And I said, I'm just reading this book. And she said, isn't that about John Brown? And I said, yeah. And I think that question is the essence of why it needed to be told. Meaning, we get this face on, this posture on, when we're told we're going to talk about the hurts and sins of this nation, that actually this kind of sorrowful face, and it makes us not want to have the conversation. It makes us step aside. It makes us think we've heard it before. It makes us fall into some knee-jerk position positive or negative that we have a stance on. And McBride's telling of the story invites you in. It invites you to be a part of the story and to laugh at all the human ridiculousness of real people. And it doesn't seem to have an agenda with you. And by doing that, by telling you onion story, you know, I mean, David and I are here, but in a lot of ways, Joshua Caleb Johnson is the lead of our movie and it's his story. And we are these good and bad angels sitting on his shoulders, right? I felt when I finished the book, that feeling that you very rarely have, that you just want to give everyone you love this book for Christmas. You want them to read it. And one of the ways as an American actor that I can do that is say, hey, David, why don't we put these clothes on? Why don't we pretend to be these people and we'll tell the story? <laughs> yeah. So Joshua Caleb Johnson, uh, who plays Onion, right? He did uh, got such an amazing job with that role. Uh, David, you get asked to play the part of Frederick Douglass. It is a much, I would say, different picture of Douglass than other people have put on film and a different picture than I think a lot of people have in their heads about Frederick Douglass to the extent that they have a picture in their heads at all. The portrayals rendered in a very particular way in James's book. So I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about the Douglass that you read in the book and what it was about the character that appealed to you and made you want to take the part, you know, was Frederick Douglass a hero of yours before you read the book? Yeah, I mean, Frederick Douglass became a hero of mine after working on this, but honestly was not before I, I knew about as much about Frederick Douglass as I think a lot of Americans do, which is to say, like, not not nearly enough. And I hadn't read the book. Ethan gave me a copy of The Good Lord Bird after he asked if I'd be interested in doing this. He said, read the book, though. Just read it and then tell me what you think. <laughs> he was trying to make sure I was going to be okay with this particular portrayal of Douglas. 
and had the same experience that he described. I laughed. I, I'm normally a very slow reader. I, I devoured that book. I read it in like a day and a half. I couldn't stop and I couldn't stop laughing. And I wanted everybody I knew to have read it. And I, I had really the same feeling. And I had been asked to play Frederick Douglass on a few different occasions and always turned it down. And this one, there was no way I was going to turn it down. It was the first time I had been asked to play a version of him that wasn't interested in setting him up as infallible. All you can do as an actor is be in service of the story as a whole, right? And the way that Frederick Douglass as a character, just remove all the history from him, the way that Douglass is situated in this story to be part of Onion's journey felt so pivotal and so important and also so fun. And getting to explore that relationship between him and John Brown, which after reading that book, I would go and do much more research than I had ever done on Douglas and learning about that particular relationship was so fascinating. There was so much in there to play with and to get to do it in a way where it didn't have to hold up the weight of the concerns of a race, of an entire race of people about whether or not we look good on television, <laughs> right? Like that's the thing I hate. And the reason I had turned it down before was because I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in making somebody a hero because we can't survive anybody being complicated who is a notable person, Yeah. right? And so this one, he felt real to me. He felt like a real person that I could play that was flawed and also brilliant. It didn't take away anything from how brilliant he was, didn't take away anything from how important he was. And his actions in the scenes that he's in make sense as someone else who is also yeah. like grappling with what it means to be famous and with, you know what I'm saying? Like right. this, yeah. they, they add up to all things that I felt like I understood very well. So it allowed me to approach the character from a place of understanding and not a place of like, well, I don't, this doesn't feel like a human being. Cause I don't know yeah. that that would be useful for the story. So James, you know, I think there's no one who's read the book who doesn't have that reaction to say something about what Ethan and Debbie just said, which is that everybody laughs. Everybody thinks it's funny. It's a hilarious book, right? And that in and of itself is a little bit subversive, right? Because it's a, a book about slavery, a book about the buildup to the Civil War, a catastrophic event in American history. And, you know, with, it was treated with due seriousness by most people in most settings. And here you are a black writer writing about America's original sin in a very irreverent way. And I saw a quote of Ethan, somewhere where he said that when he read the book, the irreverence of it and the humor in it attracted him, but also that it was, quote, a very dangerous, very dangerous in the current atmosphere. And I wonder whether when you wrote the book, it felt dangerous to you to be writing about it in that tone, often compared to, to Twain, right? There's a lot of comparisons of the book to, to Huckleberry Finn. Did it feel dangerous to you? Did you feel like you were doing something subversive by writing about this topic with such a humorous approach? Honestly, not at all. I just thought it was funny. I mean, race is funny. The things we do around the subject of race are just really stupid and they're really funny. <laughs> so, I mean, if you, I mean, if you just look at it, you know, like if a Martian landed here and saw us, you know, treating each other the way we, you don't see giraffes like getting pissed off because lions don't have stripes and long necks. I mean, we're the only, so I, I didn't see it as dangerous at all. You have to remember, I was a reporter for a long time, and then I was a jazz musician for a long time. And so the blend of like irreverence and, and fact <laughs> has folded into my life over the, the previous, you know, 20 years before I became a writer. So 
I'm looking for peace and something that makes me laugh. Look, if you approach a book like that thinking something's dangerous, you're dead out the gate. No. So I just thought it would be funny. Ethan, I'm going to ask you about the dangerous thing in a second because it was your quote that I quoted about it. But James, just stick with that on the humor thing. I mean, I mentioned Twain, right? Reading the reviews of the book when it first came out and subsequently when the series came out, a lot of people make this point that the book feels, whether it's, you know, the Canterbury Tales or Candide or whatever, kind of those picaresque kind of road books, right? There's a little bit of that in it. But the Twain analogy the notion of like, if Huck Finn was a cross-dressing black boy, right? I mean, that is a, a thing that people pick up on. Does that ring true to you? Were you thinking about Twain as you wrote it? Was that an no, inspiration no. tonally at all? No, look, I wish, I mean, when someone compares my work to Mark Twain, I just, it's like comparing Kenny G to Sonny Rollins. I mean, you just really shouldn't do that. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I appreciate the comparison, but there is no comparison. I mean, Twain, you know, Twain was head and shoulders above everyone. I mean, I appreciate it, but it's not, it's not really correct. Look, it's sort of like when someone listens to some, some really great music, they come up with all the superlatives to just say, oh, it's great, you know, ah, this bad. But ultimately, the song just, it just lives in your soul and it makes you want to do good. And these characters and this man and his story made me want to do good. And doing good for people in this country, especially now, is to try to help them see the history a little bit that they're not interested in and try to make them laugh. Because if we can laugh together, a lot of good things can happen. So that's what it was. Yeah. So Ethan, I, I throw it back to you because you were the one who said that that kind of irreverence, a black writer writing about slavery in that tone is, again, the quote was very dangerous in the current atmosphere. What did you mean? If you really want to talk about humor, right, and wit and making people laugh, I mean, I couldn't agree with James Moore. I think as a creative person, he can't be thinking, oh, I want to do something dangerous. It's like saying you want to do something important. I mean, as soon as somebody says to you they're going to do something important, I mean, it, you just it's a big bore. You want to do something truthful from your heart, right? But how it intersects with the public is a yeah. different thing. And I think personally that I learn more about race from Richard Pryor and Red Fox and Chris Rock. When somebody makes you laugh and they just tell the truth and your body just laughs. I remember going to see Get Out and I was at a packed movie theater you know, very mixed race audience, you know, black folks, white folks watching. And everybody, there was a weird tension in the room. Like, is it okay to laugh at that? Or one part of the crowd laughed at something more than the other. And by the time we all left, we were friends. Like, it was like that great thing that art can do, which is we were scared together. We all jumped at the same time. We laughed at the same jokes. And there's something healing that happens about it. And it's dangerous to do what I mean is, movie studios, people putting money behind things. They're all scared. Everybody's scared to talk about this and talk about each other. And they're scared they're going to say the wrong thing. And, and Onion, our character, is not scared he's going to say the wrong thing. Right. You know, people would ask me, how'd you feel about playing John Brown? The truth is I'm not playing, quote unquote, John Brown, some library version of it. I'm playing the John Brown that Onion is seeing. David is playing the Frederick Douglass that Onion is seeing. It's art, it's a tale. It's a yarn being spun by this kid. And he's gonna make it as interesting and fabulous as possible. And so I love what David said earlier about, you know, you have to live inside the metaphor of the thing you're doing. And you have to play in that key. I mean, there were lots of people when we first started doing this, you know, when you start acting, you feel people by the monitors, right? And I could hear the whispers. Is he really going to be that ridiculous? I mean, he can't do this the whole show, right? 
you just have to tune those things out and just go, yeah, I am going to keep doing this. I am going to keep doing it, and it's going to work, but it's not going to be normal. I agree that the book is dangerous, and I agree what James just said, that it's not. I, yeah. I agree with both those statements. So, David, you made a point, though, a second ago, right, that as you were thinking about Frederick Douglass, that you knew a little bit about him, but not probably about as much as most people know, which isn't really all that much. And then you learned a lot more. I mean, I think if you watch this, clearly this is not meant to be a documentary, you know, but it's a piece of art, right? But there's obviously a historical fact in the middle of it. And important in that respect, I feel like I knew a decent amount about this story before I read the book and before I watched the series. But, you know, I think even just the presentation, the fact that John Brown's life intersected with Douglass's in the way that it did, the fact that it intersected with Harriet Tubman's life in the way that it did, the factual basis on which the book was built, those pieces of history are largely unknown in the country, right? And I think there's a part of what makes this thing, you know, the timing of it, the way it's been received, the power of it has a lot to do with what's going on. We'll talk about what's going on in the country a little later, but it's also that it kind of opens people's eyes to a story that, you know, it's not even like a lot of this history, which has been mythologized and glossed up and presented in a pretty way. A lot of these facts are just not known in any way to most mm -hmm. people. And I think that's part of why it derives a certain kind of power. You're like, really? This shit happened? Yeah. I mean, that was definitely part of it for me. And then it, it begs the question, why did we not know this before? Right. Because that feels intentional. That was one of my big takeaways from the research that I started to do was like, why would I not be taught this? Like, who is served by not teaching you about a successful overthrow of a major part of the U.S. government. You would say, like, that's a major moment in American history. There's no civil war without it. And I didn't know anything about it. And I grew up in the Bay. Like, we'd get Malcolm X's birthday off of school. Right. I didn't know. I, I knew so little about John Brown. I certainly didn't know about Frederick Douglass's intersection with John Brown. I knew nothing about any of this stuff. And so that became really interesting to me. So, James, we had that thing. We played that sound, right? It starts off the seventh episode out of seven in the series. And it's this declaration of Frederick Douglass saying, this is why John Brown matters. This is his role in history. He essentially is in a very direct way telling the audience what to think about, what they're about to see, what Harper's Ferry meant, why it was important, et cetera. Is that like from your point of view, we know that it's Douglass speaking it, but is that your assessment? Like when you think about trying to historically contextualize John Brown, you know, is that you speaking in some sense about why this story matters in history and what Brown's place should be in our understanding of these events that unfolded in the lead up to the Civil War? That's why this guy really does matter. I suspect the actual words were probably put together by Mark Rashad, who was, you know, well, no, so you know James, that is a Frederick Douglass speech that Mark and I, you know, we're dreaming about how to orient it. And so we came across in our research that speech and thought how beautiful it was to know that this is what Frederick Douglass thought. I guess we should say Mark Richard, who adapted uh, the book for screen with Ethan and worked on a lot of the individual episode scripts, is an EP on it, co-creator, et cetera, et cetera. You're talking about Mark Richard there, right? You're right. But my view of this piece of this story is that Frederick Douglass was saying these words after John Brown was dead. And one of the most interesting and compelling pieces of theater I've ever seen that I've ever personally seen is when David and Ethan play this moment where John Brown, John Brown begs Frederick Douglass to come with him. And Frederick Douglass says he can't. But you can see that Frederick Douglass is speaking as a man who's just simply afraid to do it. 
He just doesn't have the guts to go and get himself killed. Or he doesn't have the desire, whatever it is. But you can see a lot of it. I mean, Davi really worked that pretty well. But <laughs> my point is that, yes, I believe that um, until the end of his life, Frederick Douglass had some regret that he didn't have the will to die fighting slavery the way John Brown did. And that really is is one of the many, many compelling pieces of humanity that this story encompasses. You know, you, you talk about Twain and Huck Finn. You know, Jim was trying to get away from slavery. He wasn't trying to be a hero. He was just trying to run from it. John Brown was running at slavery. And Frederick Douglass was yelling at it, but John Brown was running towards it to fight it. And that was the difference between them. So, Ethan, let me, you know, there's a moment in the series where some characters are discussing, you know, what Brown's up to here. And it's thrown into very stark relief, this notion that Brown... He's trying to free the slaves, but he's really not trying to save black people. He's really trying to save white people who he regards as, you know, living in sin in some sense in perpetuating the system of slavery. Just talk a little bit about that. It's part of what saves this narrative from what some people would critique. Oh, it's another white savior story here. We got another white guy. Why are we not focusing on blacks who are trying to free the slaves? Why are we focusing on the white guy? Why is it always Hollywood making the the white guy, the hero, in some sense, Brown is really about trying to save white people's souls in this piece, right? I think very much so. I think to understand my character, you know, as I walk in the shadow of this great man, as he's pretending to stand in these shoes, it becomes very obvious that John Brown is a Christian. And when James said earlier that he didn't have a dog in the fight, that's literally true. But I think his faith made him realize that he does have a dog in the fight that that if we all are made by the same maker and we all are brothers and sisters it is my job it is my job to go down swinging and to wake up white christian america and to stop seeing you know the the warm smile of yes i know we're all god's children but not, i'm not going to do anything about it is not good enough he saw himself as a co-conspirator you know as i am with you in word and deed, and I'm going to try to make this nation live up to its dream of what it claims to be. But I found so interesting, you know, when you play a character, finding out that his grandfather rode with George Washington and split with George Washington over the issue of slavery. I mean, so this is a, a man that when he was a boy, grew up in a household with abolitionists. This was not new. What was new is the call to action because of the Dred Scott Act and a few other things that happened in John Brown's life that made it impossible for him to do God's work without violence. It made it impossible for him to help escape slaves, the Dred Scott Act. And so he felt forced into this issue. I found it, it just hugely compelling. And my brain still goes back to the scene that James was just talking about that I love so much. It's a fascinating scene. They meet. John Brown does beg Frederick Douglass to come. But it's such an act of friendship that Frederick Douglass risks his life to tell John Brown, I'm not going to be there. Frederick Douglass right. at this time is an escaped slave going south to meet him and say face to face, I'm not coming, which is a very brave act. And it's a strange thing because people did hold his manhood cheap. Some people that, oh, you should have done it. You should have died. And his answer was, you can die for justice anytime you want. I want to live for it. You know, set yourself on fire if you want. Do I admire it? Yes. Am I going to do it? No. And so the, the the conversation is so ripe with where we are now. 
that is an excellent place to take a break. We'll sell some soap flakes and then we'll come back for the second part of this podcast with James McBride and Ethan Hawk and Debbie Diggs on Hell and High Water. Well, this is goodbye. I'm sorry you're going to Captain. I'm so sorry. I wish I could stop it. Oh, I deserve to hang. Not for inciting a slave insurrection, but for tearing so long in the engine house. Huh? Why didn't I take the bridge? That was so stupid. For that, I should hang. You did the best you could. We'll see if God agrees. Mm-hmm. You still have your good Lord Birdfeather. Let's see. Lord Bird doesn't fly in a flock. You know what? The voice of our spirit is gentle. Sometimes you have to fly alone here. We're back here with McBride, Hawk, and Diggs on Hell and High Water talking about the Good Lord Bird, the Showtime series, which I haven't really yet said on this thing how awesome I think, how just truly fantastic the series was. And that scene comes in the last episode. John Brown's in prison. He's about to hang. He's meeting with Onion. And we now learn there in that scene what the meaning of the title of the book and the series is as they talk about the good Lord Bird and what its metaphorical meaning is. James, you wrote this book. You got all the attention that you got. You won awards, got a lot of praise, justifiably so. Did you think after you wrote it and it was as successful as it was, did you think, oh, this is obviously headed for the screen? Or did you think this book is unadaptable? Because I know an awful lot of novelists who the first thing they do when they write a great novel is like, say, this will, this will never make it to the screen. What was your view about its adaptability? I've had so many books that never made it that I just forgot all about it and just went on <laughs> about my business, man. I, mean, you know, <laughs> I didn't even bother thinking about that. I just, you know, Ethan came out the blue. So I, I wasn't thinking about that. If you think about that when you're writing a book, you again... You're oh, I meant, a- I meant after. I meant once you'd written the book. And it no, meant, no, like, once, once it, was it was done. You know, when I was done, I was sorry that I couldn't spend any more time with these people. Yeah. Uh, because they gave me so much peace and a, such a relief. But, you know, when a book is out, then you go and you talk about it so much that you just hate it. And that's it. And then, and then it goes away and you move on. So, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was sorry to leave them. Then I was glad to leave them. And then they came back as different people, you know, with different colors and shades and styles. So it was, it was quite a journey. Ethan, you have made a lot of movies, like a lot, like, you know, 80 some, right? And you've done theater, you've done television, you've done all kinds of stuff. And you've adapted things and done things that are original and you've written stuff and directed stuff. You Like you've done it all, right? Did this book present particular, did you look at it and think, man, this is going to be hard to get this on screen? Or did you look at it and think, I mean, it's always hard, right, to make the series and get it done and get it made and make it good. But did this thing present particular challenges as you thought about trying to move it from novel to the form that eventually took? In my experience, this might sound like a little mystic and dumb, but the universe has a way of, sometimes you care a lot about something and every door is closed. I don't know why you just come up short at every turn. And this was one of those projects that for some strange reason, I felt it was supposed to happen. I met James with my wife at a cafe. We talked about it. We got along really well and it was really easy, really easy conversation. And my wife and I left and thought, well, 
whether this happens or not, man, I want to spend as much time in a room with that dude as possible. I mean, it's just, it, 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 you, you live a life as an artist and you meet a lot of clowns and every now and then you meet somebody that goes like, oh man, if the world could be like this, this would be worth doing. And so you, you put one step in front of the other. I go see a play, beautiful play at the public theater. I'm staring at David. I'm like, man, I bet he would get this. You know, I love this actor. And you go meet him and he gets it. You know, and you go to Showtime and you're like, oh, in this culture where everybody's scared and they go, yeah, let's make it. And we just doors open, you know, and most of the time they don't. Most of the time you're Don Quixote, right? Most of the time you're like, let's do it. And nothing happens, you know, right. but you got to just keep charging and keep charging and keep charging. And that's my theory. And it, it, it's ultimately not up, really up to you. The power of movies is this collective imagination. If we did not have the right Frederick Douglass, this show would not have worked. It's not up to me whether David does it or not. I can have some certain brains and approach him, but things have to come together in a mistake. I mean, look, we're all, I used to say to Joshua all the time, I hope he didn't think it was too much pressure, but I'd say, listen, we're going to go as far as you take us, boss. You, you know, I mean, this is your movie. And, and he took us all the way, but that's not up to me either. I remember texting James when Joshua came in to audition. I was like, uh-oh, here we go. We found him. It's on. Yeah. We made him audition a bunch of times, but I knew the second he started reading. He was <laughs> funny and smart and curious and confident, but also humble. And, you know, so I don't know if I answered your question, but I, I always yeah. know it's going to be hard. But yeah, but this one felt blessed. Like when you just feel in your gut, like, and, and it's strangely, the doors that are usually closed, they open up with odd ease. You know, you push on it like, wow, no. Oh. It's turned out to be easier than I thought. We just played that scene of you and Onion, right? You've said that that's one of the favorite scenes you've ever played. Why? There's an eternity behind us, an eternity ahead of us, you know? And it's very, very beautiful piece of writing. Uh, I got an email from Paul Schrader, who I admire a lot, the filmmaker and writer. And he sent me this email when he got to that episode. And he said, you know, I've watched this whole thing. And I thought, yeah, it's great, but they're never going to land this ship. They're never going to land it. It can't land. And then that scene comes on. And I remember when I read the book, there's a grace to that scene. When the book starts, when the story starts, you know, I'm just an old crazy white guy to Onion. And he's just a tool that I can use to propel my cause, right? We have labels attached to us. The labels are so wrong for me. I put him in a dress. I don't, I just care about the color of his skin. I don't care about who he is. I don't even know that he's a he. Right. And McBride gets at something very deep there, whether you're talking about race or gender or North or South or Democrat or Republican, you know, th there's missing a humanity, the humanness that the book gets at. And by the end, these two, they love each other and that love is palpable. And there's something I find very moving about one person at the end of his life, his last few minutes and one person with this whole future ahead of him and this intersection in time, eternity ahead and eternity behind. But they have this moment to be alive. I felt it was very powerful and it was powerful in the way that it was actable. You know, sometimes you read a book and yeah, it's beautiful. You know, there's some killer stuff and, you know, crime and punishment stuff, but it's not actable. This was actable. These were characters and this was a set piece scene. You know, even there's a great scene yeah. with David has with Joshua in the drawing room, but it's a scene. It's actually actable. And I think, you know, I know James is here right now, but I think that's one of the things that 
could make Deacon King Kong, his new book, a, a great film too, is that he writes scenes, characters that pop. So I don't know why I loved it, but that's my best answer. James, when you saw the series, you know, I know enough enough people who've written books and seen them adapted for screen that when they have seen the outcome and they've been disappointed or they feel like their their work has been damaged in some way or maltreated or people have not been true to it. I've read enough to know that I know you don't think that about this piece, but were there things in watching the series where it opened up new things for you about the story where you looked at it and thought those guys went someplace that wasn't really in my book, either in terms of character development or in terms of visualizing something or thematically where you thought in the conversion to the screen, they have added something that is valuable uh, that you just never really thought you saw in your own book, but that they found. Yeah, several places. One, John Blackie's production design of the town of Pikesville was just extraordinary. It was just really, really far beyond what I imagined. Although it seemed that he, he took what he read in the book and then he created what I imagined, but then he created a bigger world more colorful. I mentioned the scene between David and Ethan when Frederick Douglass goes to Chambersburg to meet John Brown. That was far beyond what I had imagined, and it was far beyond the characters in the book. Look, when you write a book and it becomes, you know, becomes something else, Duke Ellington, the reason why Duke Ellington's band was so great was there were two great bands in jazz, Basie and Ellington. Basie's band was one big pal. Boom, pow, they just swung really bop, bop, boom, bop. That was Basie's man. But Duke had a band of gunslingers and he would just set them loose. And every time they stepped to the microphone, Duke would just get out the way and let the guy be king. And so when Ethan and Mark Wishard and David and these guys and the people from Bloomhouse got involved, I could see these people were skilled. They were talented. And so you have to step aside. They're going to play the song, let them be king. And so they created a kingdom that was far beyond, far greater and riches than the one I imagined. Quite different, you know, they might've went with Bitcoin, I might be a gold man, you know, mutual <laughs> funds versus bar, whatever. We still, you know, we still got paid. So it's okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a crass and Douglas. <laughs> I got it, yeah. So David, I mean, you really bring Douglas to life. You have brought, I would say every character you've touched to life in kind of incredible ways, and this is no exception. He is a super complicated character, you know, that's a broad range in the series. He has these kind of comic affectations. He's like a cognac sipping playboy, kind of a dandy in certain respects, but he's also this sort of commanding orator with this enormous moral gravitas. And, you know, it's unusual to see historical figures rendered with that level of complexity. They're usually either put up on a pedestal without humanity or they're kind of made fun of if it's a farce in some way. Douglas is both in some ways in this piece. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the wide rangingness of the part, the moral complexity, the high comedy all rolled into one. There's a high degree of difficulty, I would imagine, for an actor to pull off this kind of a part. Did that scare you or did you look at that and say, let's go? Yeah, I mean, it's what you always hope for. It's the reason you do the thing is because that's true to life. You know, I'm in quarantine in Vancouver right now. I'm like living in a Brecht play. You know, like we go through all of these different iterations of things. And I, I one of my favorite, this is a tribute to Darnell's direction also of that episode with the drawing room comedy is that, and this is, I think, true to what the novel does. The scene gets to be what it is. We don't have to 
force it into a box that it doesn't belong in. If this moment, because of how Douglas has set up his life in this castle that he lives in with these two women is is forced into being a drawing room comedy, then that's what it is. And it doesn't matter if that is out of step with the rest of the story, because like the rest of the story is all of life is everything we've ever lived before. So all of these things exist. What is like the, the most joyous thing as an actor is to get to do all of that at once. Making things is hard work, but that's like the it's the good part of the work. That's what you want is to get an opportunity to really lean into something that has a style and that has somebody who's not just thinking one thing and doing that thing or saying the thing that they're about to do and then doing it or reflecting on the entire history of their life as exposition, right? You just want you want people to be living in a moment and get to be that. And this was many of those opportunities stacked on top of each other. So there's a total connection to this thing, Ethan, that I saw you tell the story as you were getting ready to play the part of John Brown going up to his grave in Lake Placid. And in that, there's a New Yorker profile that came out of you last fall where you were talking about making that pilgrimage. And you said, you want every project to have deep meaning to you, but they don't. This one was magical to me. It's somehow connected to the spine of my life. I mean, Obviously, that's a, a pretty pretty heavy thing to say about about any piece of work. That's more than saying this a great part to play. That it's kind of was personally meaningful to you in a particular way. And I'm curious what you meant by that. Uh, well, hmm. I think I meant that I love my craft, and when you can use your craft to be a manifestation of what you believe in there is something about this book these characters this world i'm an american right you know i'm born in texas i've lived in this country my whole life my first acting class was at the paul robeson center for the performing arts and it was always very clear to me whenever success happened that i never had to deal with it anything that paul robeson had to deal with this man you know he was everything an actor dreams of being a great world-class performer, but he didn't do just one thing. He acted and he sang and he was an activist and a orator and a sportsman. I mean, he was a hero, an old-fashioned hero. And I guess when I say the spine of my life is you want your work to be in service of something besides yourself, right? And you, you want to feel like you're part of you know, it's, it's oral history, right? That's what art is, our, our performance. You know, we're telling stories and we're sharing our experiences. And this one to me felt valuable. And I couldn't believe that these doors were opening and it was happening. And it felt like a great responsibility. And, you know, that puts pressure. All the way to say is it felt like an incredible opportunity. You know, if you're a baseball player, this is the at-bat you dream of. And here it was, and I'm 50 years old and I felt ready for it. You know, I felt ready for this character. It asked of me everything that I learned. It was going to push me to the wall of my talent. I was only going to fail. I could never be as good as John Brown deserves, you know? And not just him. O.P. Anderson, Dangerfield, Newbie, you know, this story. Like as David said, how did I grow up not knowing that black people and white people worked together to overtake the country's largest armory and started the civil war. How did somebody deem that not worth? They taught me about the Alamo like 9,000 times, 
I probably mistaught you about the Alamo. I probably told you the wrong version of the story on top of everything else. Yeah, you know, it's like an old-fashioned land grab. They said it was a call for freedom, but, you know, I mean, so it's a wake-up call to me as a person, and it let me use my art to be in service of something. I mean, I think that's what I meant. Yeah. That's, a, that's a long way of saying I think yeah. my mom would be proud of me. Yeah. The, the Alamo is a, a beacon of freedom, and George Washington with those fucking wooden teeth. All right. The other thing that's true about this thing is you guys got in a weird way as horrible as the last year has been. And we talk a lot on this podcast about how terrible things are because it sort of was born out of this notion of everyone feeling like everything was apocalyptic. There's a weird way in which the apocalyptic nature of the things that happened between our politics and the pandemic and then this thing getting delayed and then ending dropping when it dropped is like just sheer luck. But I think it actually was luck for you guys, the timing of this dropping in an election year, dropping after you know, as horrible as everything that with the fallout from George Floyd was, there's a moment that you guys caught with this. And I think part of why it affected people pretty deeply was the the timing of it. And I want to talk about that in a little more detail and how this thing speaks to our present day. When we come back, we'll take a quick break and come back for the last part of this special Good Lord Bird edition of Hell and High Water. Have you lost faith in me? No, no, it is not about faith. John, it's a, it's a question of method. If what you are proposing causes the nation to explode in bloody revolution, it will take even longer to reach true equality. You are by far the craziest person to ever sit at this table. Satilia, um, Satilia, please. John? Captain? No, I've been called crazy before. A fool. But I know there will be no friendship with the slave-holding man until he is soundly beaten, holds himself accountable, and asks for forgiveness. Then we can discuss friendship. Yes, but that friendship is nearly five generations away. So then I'm a fool. But I'm a fool for God. So welcome back to the last part of this episode <laughs> of Hell and High Water on the Good Lord Bird. That was from the third episode of the series. That episode revolves all around Onion and John Brown getting to upstate New York. They have dinner at Douglas's house with Douglas and his black wife and his white German mistress and all of them sit around this very kind of fancy ornate table and they have this moment where they're debating a matter of great consequence, kind of how to proceed along the path towards abolition, this goal that Douglas and, and John Brown share that has made them friends, but about which they disagree tactically in terms of what the right way to proceed is, what's the best uh, way to get there. And, you know, you hear Brown say this thing about accountability and about how, you know, be happy to be friends with slavers, but only after they've held themselves accountable and asked for forgiveness. And, you know, as we think about the present day, if you take out slaver and just put in the country, America, or at least white people in America, you could sort of say the same thing. In order to really go forward in a truly just and equitable way, the white America needs to hold itself accountable and ask for forgiveness. That's a point of view for sure. 
And you hear Douglas say, John, if you wait for that, it's going to be five generations before we get there. And I'm sitting there watching that thinking, you know, it's been a lot more than five generations and it's not clear we're fully there today. So I guess that's a question for all you guys. Are, are we there yet? Has America, at least white America, taken full accountability and asked for forgiveness in a way that allows for us to move forward really the way that we'd all like to move forward, which is hand in hand? seems like a pretty important question for where we are in terms of race in the country right now. Well, this is like trying to turn an ocean liner around on a dime. It's not easy, but I think we've made a lot of progress. And I don't want to sound like, you know, Mr. Shuckety put on tap, you know, shucking and dancing and, you know, things are better. I mean, when I think of Clarence Thomas, I just feel bad. I just feel like all these grandmothers who got their teeth kicked out and these kids who got their heads knocked in so that a ding dong like that could be a Supreme Court justice makes me feel bad. But on the other hand, I think what happened with George Floyd and with that we happened to land where we did and the pandemic came, it was really part of God's plan. You know, you have to remember, I grew up in New York. Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani were heroes in this city most of my adult life. And now we finally, everyone gets to see what black people have always seen. America's got a chance to live black for a while. In America, most Americans just don't like it. And so the change we're seeing, I think, is real. And I'm so proud of these young people for pushing ahead because you can't negotiate with people who don't want to change. You just have to say, we're going to change and you can change with us. And if you don't, that's okay. But we're still going to change. So, yeah, I, th I think this is an inspiring time to be alive. I'm so glad to be alive to see this. I feel privileged to be alive to see this. And I'm so, and you know, when Ethan was talking about doors opening and I can remember when David walked onto the set and I can remember seeing him in the dressing room and he was laughing before they even put his costume, before they even got him started. Like he understood the irony. It was just as a man who's, you know, I'm not knocking you over the head with religion, but I think this is God's plan. This guy was supposed to be so great. He was so powerful. He could control everything. Well, how about trying to control what people breathe, mister? You so bad with your orange head. I'll put it in your breath. So I think, yeah, I think change is coming and I think it's good. And I'm so proud that we're part of it. David, kind of the same question to you. I mean, if you just modify those words that Brown says in that speech a little bit and change it from the slaveholder to the country and say that until the country holds itself accountable and asks for forgiveness, you know, real friendship's impossible. How close are we to that? Are we there? Is that still a very distant fantasy? I don't know. It requires defining terms, I think, a little more clearly, right? When you say country, what I think is great about that scene is that it is a, a real conversation being had between people, right? Actual human beings with a difference of opinion speaking about it. And that happens all the time in our lives. We, those conversations happen all the time in interracial friendships and within their conversations I have with black friends, right? There are conversations that I have in homogenous groups also that happen all the time where people disagree and they spend time arguing at a point and come out of that argument with a different understanding than they had when they go in. On a grand scale, the country, the politic, the electorate, like the these things are a lot harder. We don't see them that way. It's the reason art is so important, right? It's the reason personalizing, it's the reason like watching two people have that argument is important because you don't ever see that. What you see is a map divided into red and blue states, which don't account for any sort of nuance and leads you to believe that everybody who believes one thing believes all of everything, you know, that is represented by that side. 
And you get your emotions so caught up in it that sometimes it's hard to see. We once again had a large amount of the population of the country vote for Donald Trump. All of those people were voting for white supremacy. That's what they were voting for. But I'm sure a lot of people would disagree. I believe that. But I'm sure a lot of folks who voted that way would disagree with me on that. And if we could have a conversation about it, I might learn something interesting or they might learn something interesting. Right. We might both come out of that in a different place than we were before. But I don't see those people. I see like a bunch of numbers and a red state. You know, Ethan, I, I think I, I remember in studying up for this podcast, some version, some part of the story that we haven't discussed about how you came to do this project involves you being on the side of the Magnificent Seven. And around the time that the Confederate flag was taken down in South Carolina, and that being part of your intellectual journey that led to the adaptation of The Good Lord Bird, you know, and if I remember the story correctly, it's that you kind of looking at that piece of news of the Confederate flag coming down, and it being controversial in South Carolina and saying, you know, the Civil War is still not over here. Everything you said is true. I, I did say that it was a powerful experience for me. I was playing a former Confederate soldier. I was doing a scene with Denzel where my character's having PTSD and he doesn't want to fight. And Denzel's character is saying to me, the war's over. And I shout back at him, the war's not over. And while I'm learning these lines, I'm listening to talk radio about whether people have the right to fly the Confederate flag. It was like I was caught in some time blender. You know, I couldn't believe that so little time had gone by. We had a beautiful a woman who runs the Civil War Museum in Virginia come speak to a few cast members about, you know, trying to help us understand the period. And her hit on the statues was so interesting because you know, she talked about Monument Boulevard and she was saying, you know, they're paid for by the Daughters of the Confederacy. And she was talking about the pride that the white South felt at the time of the Civil War and, and just after and the great blow to their ego that they felt. And she saw the statues as a symbol of a community stuck in the first stages of grief, which is denial. You know, it's just this symbol of just it's this did not happen. This we are not bad. And that the dialogue about really understanding our collective history was not happening, that we were frozen. And I don't know, my dogs are barking, distracting me, but it's a big conversation. David's right. And a lot of the dialogue doesn't happen. You know, I remember my brother who was really upset at me about being for the statues coming down. He's very, very upset with me about it. And he's a soldier. He's, you know, a 30 year veteran. And I said to him, you know, Rommel doesn't get a statue in Berlin. He lost that war. You know, you don't walk through Berlin and see statues. It doesn't matter how great a soldier they were. They were on the wrong side of history. And that really got to him. He started kind of like, why are we not taught what these guys were fighting for? Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's a long, long, serious conversation and one that doesn't have like simple cut out answers because things mean things. What David's getting at that I, it's true. Things mean things to certain people. There's a great woman. She was part of the French resistance, Simone Veil. She wrote a great essay called Why I Don't Belong to a Political Party. And it has to do with the second I say I'm a part of this party or I, you think I'm against you before we've even spoken about one idea. And if we just tackled each idea on its own, we would find a meeting ground. Uh, look, ultimately, what we're going through in America is what the good Lord Bird really represents. And that's a, the business of identity. You know, I'm half Irish, I'm half blah, blah, I'm this, I'm that. I mean, really, and does it really matter? And so our sense of identity is rooted in this whole business of where, you know, the land of the free and the brave and so forth. Yet the Russians can come in here 
and exploit our race problem with the slickness of a used car salesman and send us at each other's throats. Because ultimately, we are really the funniest, most humorous, kindest people you'd ever want to meet. All Americans really are. Most of us. I mean, 99 there's a few knuckleheads, but generally, Americans are really fun people. And so this problem, we're learning to address it, and it's painful. But we're the only nation that's doing it right. Look at Brazil. Look at Germany. We're, we're really doing it right. We're doing it the hard way. You know, we're really getting shaped the right. We're not dieting. We're doing the elliptical mission, whatever bullshit you do. That's what we're doing. And so it's painful. But every one of these people on this podcast, the three of us, we have the same mind. We're completely different men. Yeah. Ironically, we're all men, but that's another conversation. But, you know, we we want the same thing and we're willing to bend a long way to do it. We're willing to go great lengths to make it happen. So, David, when Ethan was talking about you guys made this thing, you got it under the wire, got it made before the pandemic hit, and then the pandemic sets in and we all are going through our separate, isolated weirdnesses of being, for a period of time at least, unable to work and inside our own heads. And Ethan said somewhere that he couldn't get John Brown out of his head when the George Floyd murder happened and then the fallout from that and the country was in the state that it was in in a very acute way late last spring, early summer. He's having a constant conversation with John Brown about what he's seeing unfold here in America in last summer in the racial justice moment. I'm curious whether you were having that same conversation with Frederick Douglass. Did Frederick Douglass stick with you as you saw this stuff unfolding in the streets in America, as you saw the wake of George Floyd and the renewed, very vigorous, very passionate, very, in some cases, very angry debate over white supremacy, over the state of our race relations in the country? Were you hearing the echoes of Douglass in your mind? Yeah. I was very happy to have had this experience working on this show. I was in conversation with the good Lord Bird, I think, through that whole time. And I was happy to have had that because there were moments in that where I was so angry to the point where I stopped checking my social media and I was sitting in my little home studio recording all of these really, really angry songs. I'll never release them, I don't think. Because ultimately, I would sit there, record them, and I'd sit with them and be like... What does this do? What does this do if I put this out right now? You know, this is part of a larger conversation I'm in with myself all the time about how many eyes are on things that I do now, which is different than it used to be. You know, that's a whole other thing. But in reflecting on having made a piece of art or been part of a piece of art that I think was unafraid to present the reality of a situation and also unafraid to do it where every character is loved. This is the thing about reading McBride's work too. When you read these books, every single person in that book is treated with so much love. And there was an awful lot of hate that I was doing in the stuff that I was recording. And I think that's ultimately why I'm probably not gonna put it out because I wasn't really loving the characters enough in that stuff. I didn't care enough about them. Having that in my mind definitely helped me get through that moment. There's another element of this that I I wanna try to talk about Ethan, you kind of talked about it a little bit toward the top of the podcast, the nervousness of Hollywood. Let's not specify Showtime, but this kind of material and the nervousness around it. Part of the way I want to talk about it is this. There was a story that came out in the New York Times, James, when your book came out, that talked about the comedy in it and its irreverence. And it grouped together Good Lord Bird with Django Unchained and some Key and Peele sketch. 
and made a declaration, talked about this is all about the irreverence of these pieces. And it said that there's a new way of talking about race in America today. It's now officially okay to be boldly irreverent about not just the sacrosanct, but the catastrophic. So, you know, you think about these were all pieces that had touched on slavery in some way. They were all irreverent in their tone and there was a lot of comedy in them. Right. And, you know, striking to read that, you know, think about that. 2013 was when that piece came out. Right. So now it's seven years later. And I guess I just want to ask you guys whether you think that's still true or whether there's much more delicacy about these topics now and people are more afraid to take these topics on and that there's all of the things that have happened in our culture around this stuff. And whether that's good or bad, I'm not even going to rule on it, but it feels like we're in a different place in 2021. Would you think the conversation's improved around this or do you think it's gotten worse? What do you guys think about the evolution of the discussion on these topics over the last decade or so? Well, first of all, when I was working in newspapers, I worked in newspapers about now. I was a reporter of the Washington Post and the Boston Globe and so forth. And then I became a musician for nine years. I learned more about America as a musician than I ever learned as a journalist because I had to go and play weddings and gigs and travel in vans to Jackson, Mississippi and come back with $5 and I talked to people. So, I mean, you know, I do not think the good Lord Bird is anything like Django Reinhardt, whatever that is. Django, whatever. Django. Django Unchained. I forgot what it's called. <laughs> I love Django Reinhardt, but it's Django Unchained yeah, is the movie. Django right? Unchained. I mean, that's just that's just fantasy. I mean, the black cat walking around shooting people up. I just didn't like that movie. I mean, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the guy who wrote it. I think he's brilliant, but that's just a fantasy. You know, my reality is at two o'clock in the morning, when I get stopped at the cops, I can't say my mother's Jewish. It's okay, really. No problem. So I'm not going to waste time. with, And, you know, and David has the same <laughs> issue. I'm not going to waste time with that. So I don't need someone, you know, like a reporter who writes that. I mean, I, I understand the intent, you know, but you're grouping us all together saying good Lord Bird is like Django, whatever, and get out. It's just completely different. The good Lord Bird reaches deep. We're talking about a guy who really gave his life and suffered his, lost his whole family and should have been as famous as his famous black friend, Frederick Douglass, and was not because he had the balls to say, I'm not going to take it. I'll give my life and the life of my sons for this. So you can't compare the two. And when you compare the two, it says more about the writer than the business of what he's talking about. The bottom line is that identity and who you are in this world has always been draped around this business of what some people call white supremacy, but what I call the business of I. I am a free person. And we learned this from the English. Because, you know, when we came here, the ones who came here were just the dregs of the... They, they weren't the top <laughs> of the food chain. So we came here, we kicked these people out, we ate their food, we invited them to dinner, we called Thanksgiving, and then, you know, that's, that's the end of them. So I think the whole business of identity needs to be just looked at differently. So we can be clean about what we're dealing with. It helps us see things better. So that's my take on it. And I hope somebody understands what that. I don't know if yeah. that sounded like a rant. I didn't. Well, mean it, that. no, it didn't sound like a rant, but I totally get you don't think there's a comparison. Just to be clear, not me that made it, but there's a comparison between Django Unchained and Good Lord Bird. I do come back to the question that I meant to try to get at, which is really more of a question of like what's happened in the sensitivities around topics related to race primarily, do you guys think that the environment is more hospitable to making, Ethan, what you call dangerous art, art that makes people uncomfortable, that's subversive in some way, that's transgressive? Is the environment more hospitable to that or more hostile to that now 
Is Good Lord Bird getting it made? Is that a miracle? Or is that a leading indicator of the fact that making this kind of work is becoming easier in the world that we now live in, the entertainment complex we now live in? I'm just trying to figure that particular question out. I think it's hard to answer because we're in flow. We're changing every second. Every second, you know, when that person wrote that article, Obama's president, I remember during the election, I'm on the board of this organization, Dream Yard, which do like acting lessons of kids in the Bronx. I know Tim Lord. He's a great man. Yeah, he's great. They're a great organization. But one of these teachers, I'm doing these like little acting classes, Latin guys driving me home. And um, he's a teacher and we're talking and I was saying Trump's never going to get elected. And he's like, oh, Trump's definitely get elected. And, you know, I'm your classic white guy in this scenario where I just didn't see that coming. I thought things are moving forward. And he's like, no, nah, I've sensed a heating up of racism in the entire Obama presidency. And I I just thought he was wrong. I thought the sailboat's going this way. And, you know, I don't everything's moving all the time. And the zeitgeist is mysterious about when things are OK, when they're not OK. I, I kind of fall back onto what James originally said, which is that you can't even think like that. You just got to tell the truth. You got to play your song. Everybody's got to play their song. I remember sometimes getting notes from people about these scripts or the show or things like that. I think, God, you're just thinking too much, you guys. <laughs> you're thinking too much. You're not thinking about Onion. You can't think about what everybody's going to, you know, I mean, even like if we weren't on this show, I might want to talk to David about that music that he recorded. I don't know. Maybe there's too much hate. I mean, sometimes I wonder, did John Lennon regret singing How Do You Sleep or all that hate music he recorded against McCartney? I don't know. But I know it was important to him that he did it, mm. you know? And, and, and we got to sing our songs and we got to tell the truth with each other and hear each other. And one of the things that I'm so grateful for to James is he provided us, not only did he write a story that was about America working together, Frederick Douglass, John Brown, Onion, Harriet Tubman, you know, the Brown boys, all these characters coming to He invited David and I to play inside his imagination and that let us work together. Oh, wow, black people and white people working together. Guess what? It's not that hard, it's, fu it's fucking fun. <laughs> we had a great time. We made meaningful substantive art that speaks to us. And, and James provided that opportunity through his imagination because he wasn't too worried about whether it was considered dangerous, right? People working together, telling the truth, that's the answer lies in that. People thinking too much about what the outside world's gonna think if I do that on Wednesday, maybe I should wait till Friday. <laughs> I, I don't know. How's that, did that make sense? It definitely made sense. Both these guys made sense. Both of you guys made sense in your different ways. Uh, David, you've done a lot of very politically freighted work in music in particular. So I guess I'm curious about your thought about this and the climate that exists for, again, making stuff that's bold and radical and hard to find an audience, hard to get backers, hard to get promoted, hard to get marketed, et cetera, et cetera. Are we getting in a better place or are we getting in a more constricted space for that kind of work? Well, I think the biggest advantage that the entertainment complex or industry that uh, has going for it is that at this moment, there is such a desire for content. It's a lot less likely, even though I still think it should be made, for The Good Lord Bird to get made if that's the only book written by a Black author that's going to be adapted in a TV show in the next 10 years, right? That's a different climate than the one that it entered into, or that's not the case, which is all basically just to say that we can have this fantasy of a Django Unchained and The Good Lord Bird. Those things can both exist, and we can look at them in we can talk about how they are different 
We can talk about the differences in the spirit in which and the creators who made those things and all of those things. Those are and we can look at Get Out. There are going to be a lot of art created around issues of race in the future, as there already have been in the past. But there's going to be more and more that continue to be created. And the reason we're going to be able to get a lot of them, I think, is because the industry is hungry for anything. It's a good time to be creating stuff right now. And I think by virtue of just that fact, that need to like feed this beast that is recklessly trying to figure out how to make money. That's what is happening here. Storytellers can really take advantage of that moment and figure out a way to get their particular story told and be in conversation with all of these stories of the moment. And I think we're lucky in that sense. I think having a lot of content come out at a time 20 years from now, when we get to look back at everything that came out in between 2019 and the end of 2021, we can look at those things and we can write think pieces about that. We can talk about that. We can teach that in college and we could study what that means, the way we study the Harlem Renaissance or the way we sort of arbitrarily group these things, these pieces of art into what they meant in their time, which we won't know until we're out of the time, you know, but I like that there's a lot of it. I think we'll have a better understanding later by virtue of a large sample size. I appreciate you guys taking the time for everybody out there who has not yet seen the good Lord bird. You gotta see it because it's really fabulous from start to finish, top to bottom. I had very high expectations and it surpassed them. So you guys, thank you for taking the time and Ethan, good luck at the virtual golden globes. Take that hardware home, please. Thank you, guys. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to David Diggs, James McBride, and Ethan Hawke for being here. If you like this episode of Hell and High Water, please, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. It's how people find out about what we are doing over here. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 